0: sense of a a happy people. They're singing everlasting joy, gladness and joy. The sorrow and mourning have fled away. Every revival is essentially a revival of praise. It's a revival of preaching, it's a revival of prayer, but it's also a revival of praise. Many of our greatest hymns were written during seasons of revival. This is particularly true of the hymns of Charles Wesley. And the hymns of Charles Wesley have so greatly enriched the Church of Christ that they were written during that great evangelical awakening in the 18th century. Virtually every book recording the history of revival makes mention of the singing of the Lord's people. The Lord's people get a new song. And David talked about the new song the Lord put in his mouth in the Psalm 40. And certainly when revival comes, God's people have a new song. They are given a new sense of what they have in christ isaiah wrote these words a generation before the babylonian exile the prophet didn't just foresee the captivity but he also anticipated the return and this is the amazing thing about isaiah ezekiel lived during the captivity daniel lived during the captivity they brought words of comfort Jeremiah lived during the time when Israel were taken captive. He saw the collapse of Jerusalem, but he was able to bring words of comfort. But Isaiah brought words of comfort a whole generation before the captivity even happened. And yet the incredible thing about Isaiah was he saw it all. He saw the revival during King Hezekiah's time, but he also saw the wickedness that followed King Hezekiah, and he witnessed the wickedness that preceded King Hezekiah. He saw the ups and downs of the Lord's people, but he knew... A terrible day of judgment was coming. And yet when that day of judgment was coming, the Lord gave him a word of comfort that God's people could hold on to during the tough times. And there's always a word of comfort for us when times are hard, when times are tough. This particular verse in verse 11, it anticipates the return. The people of God are returning. They're coming with singing. And this isn't the only time that Isaiah has used these words So let's look at the other passage Isaiah chapter 35 And what a beautiful passage this is We could read the whole chapter now But, but we'll, we'll not just read the whole chapter But let's just uh, look, I think we, we should just, just to get the sense of the context Look at verse 1 The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees." Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, Even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, And the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, And the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, And streams in the desert, And the parched ground shall become a pool, And the thirsty land springs of water, And the habitation of dragons where each lay, Shall be grass with reeds and rushes, and an highway shall be there, and it shall call, be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now it's true that all of these words, whether it is the passage in Isaiah 35 or the passage in Isaiah 51, it's true that they all refer specifically to Israel in the Old Testament. But they also apply to the church. But do they apply to the church merely by way of application? Or are these words a prophetic insight into the revival that breaks out in the church of Christ? Well, I would say that these words in Isaiah 35 and 51, they were partially fulfilled when Israel returned from Babylon, but they were not completely fulfilled fulfilled. They are only completely fulfilled in the church age. For example, it talks here about everlasting joy upon their head. It's only when Christ came that everlasting joy came. And you look again at chapter 35 and it talks about the eyes of the blind being opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man leaping as a heart. When did all that happen? When Jesus Christ came And there is a clear sense here that it is the New Testament church that is in view, not merely Old Testament Israel. So I would certainly argue that this text, it is a prophecy of what God does amongst his people in this age when the Spirit comes and stirs us. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return. And come with singing onto Zion. Of course, Zion in the Old Testament it is constantly a type of the church of Christ in the New Testament. Jerusalem, Zion was part of Jerusalem. Zion was the place where the temple sat in Jerusalem. And Zion and Jerusalem both represent the church of Christ in this New Testament age. And of course in the New Testament you read about the A heavenly Jerusalem, which gives us a sense of the great eternity of God's people. So there are important images and types here that apply to us today that we should not lose sight of. So let's think about the praising during revival. In the first place, let's consider the people who praise. Who are they? Who are the people who praise God? They are the redeemed. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord. Isaiah 51, the word redeemed is used. Isaiah 35, the word ransomed is used. It's exactly the same word in the Hebrew Old Testament. It means deliverance upon the payment of a price. And this promise of extreme happiness, it only applies to those who are redeemed. It's happiness on the ground of the purchase price, the price of our redemption, which is the blood of the lamb that was slain. You see, Israel were released from their bondage. They were returning. They were captives. The verse one of Isaiah 51 talks about looking to the rock from whence we were who, were and to the hole of the pit from whence they were digged. They were in a hole. They were in a pit, very unpleasant place. And they were there, because that's what Babylon was, it was a pit. They were a captive nation. But God digged them out of that hole. He brought them out. Because they were a redeemed people. And this is the picture that Isaiah is presenting. You look here at the verse 14. The captive exile hasteneth that he may be loosed, and that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. There was a longing in the hearts of God's people for those 70 years that they wouldn't die in that pit, that they wouldn't die in Babylon, that their nation wouldn't perish, but that they might be set free from their pit. And the captive exile hasteneth, the word hasteneth, it means that they were impatient to get out of that pit. They longed to get out of that pit. They wanted to get out of that pit in a hurry. They wanted to get out of that pit quickly. They longed for the day. And then that day came when God set them free. And the redeemed of the Lord, they returned and came with singing unto Zion because of what God had done. And as they came back, they got a fresh insight into the meaning of redemption because they were so undeserving. Their sin had got them into this mess. It had got them into this situation. They were chastened. They had got themselves involved in idolatry and God dealt with them because of their idolatry. And the most interesting thing about the Jewish people is this. In the Old Testament, before the Babylonian exile, they were continually troubled by the temptation to get engaged in idolatry. But after the Babylonian exile, they never returned to idols again. Thousands of years have passed. And yes, the Jew has rejected the Christ, but never has followed idols of other gods. They clearly learned their lesson from Babylon. And as they returned, they understood this, that their God is merciful, that their God is long-suffering, their God is kind, their God is forgiving. And so they were so excited because of what God had done. And this is what happens during revival. God's people get a fresh insight into what the gospel has done for them. The gospel is not just a message we need to preach to the unconverted. The gospel is a message that every Christian needs to hear. And it's a message we need to be reminded of day and daily. We're having a gospel mission shortly. The gospel will be preached. The gospel is for us every bit as much as it is for the unconverted. So often we can regard the gospel with a sense of familiarity. Familiarity in the worst possible sense because we often say familiarity breeds contempt. And we think we have it. We think we know it. We think we understand it. We think we've been there and we've been to the cross and we're saved by grace and we're thinking about those dear unconverted who aren't saved. But are we melted with tears under the shadow of that cross because we deserve to hang there? Are we consumed? with a sense of love to our God that has delivered us from the deepest and the darkest hell because that's where we deserve to be. And these things don't touch us as we should. But when God moves upon the hearts of his people, the redeemed of the Lord, are given that new song. And don't we need that today? And so that is the people who praise. Let's also think about the path for praise what is the path that these people are taking as they sing it's the path of return therefore the redeemed of the lord shall return and they're coming with singing onto zion they're coming directly to zion they're coming to their spiritual home this was a true revival because the people were getting right with the lord returning to the land of their forefathers In Isaiah chapter 35, this way is described as being the way of holiness. Do you see that in verse 8? And an highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. But it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, no fools, shall not err therein. This way is so good. Even though we may not have much earthly knowledge, even though we, may be bereft of education. Yet if we're in that way, we can't stray. If we're in the Lord's way, if we're in the way of holiness, the way of obedience, we can't go wrong. It's the path of righteousness. And we're in that path. It's a happy path. There's nothing is miserable. And to see a child of God, or to be the child of God, who is in the wrong way. The path of uncleanness, the path of disobedience, the path of sin. That's a dark place. To be saved by grace and to be in the wrong path. Children of Israel had been in the wrong path. They suffered for that. And Christians are suffering because they're in the wrong path. But whenever we get right with the Lord and seek to be in the right place with God, we're in the right way. We're in the way of holiness. It's a way of repentance, a way of getting right with God. But it's the right way. And we can't err when we're in that way. Eastern travelers would frequently sing as they would walk. Traveling in groups, walking. The journey was long. their feet were sore. The singing was a way of breaking the momentum. Of making the journey pass. That's what the songs of degrees are all about, you know, and the psalms. The pilgrims were coming to Jerusalem for the set feasts. I too, the hills will lift mine eyes from whence doth come mine aid. They sang as they walked. But what must that singing not have been like when they came back to Jerusalem for the very first time in 70 years? Most of these people had never seen Jerusalem. There was a few of the older people had seen Jerusalem, but the younger people had never seen it. They had heard of it. They had never seen it. They came to the borders again. They were singing, oh, to hear their songs, oh, to hear the psalms being chanted as the captives made their way home. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. You know, revival always represents a return to the Lord. It represents a return to the Lord. The paraphrase says, Come, let us to the Lord our God. With contrite hearts return. Our God is gracious nor will leave the desolate to mourn. We do lose out with the Lord. We do lose out in our relationship with God. We allow ourselves to be chained to sin, to our own foolish pride, to some kind of secret addiction, perhaps. We need to return to the Lord, that we might receive the joy of His salvation. But yet, when the children of Israel did return, many Jews chose to stay in Babylon. They had their home. They had their businesses. They were happy in Babylon. There was so much to give up. So much to leave behind. It was a prosperous place. Go and start a new civilization, a new land, and a place where there had been so much bloodshed in the past, where the walls had been broken down, where they had to rebuild the temple, where they had to... Set themselves up. That was hard work. A work of sacrifice. A work of challenge. And many chose to remain. Only some returned. The cream of Israel returned. Many opted for the comforts of Babylon. And aren't there many Christians today? They're in the world. One fit in the church. One fit in the world. Not truly committed to the things of God with a divided heart. As a result, they're losing out in the very best that God has for them. May God give us a returning spirit because there is that spirit in all of our hearts. This spirit requires commitment, conviction, humility. But it's the way to blessing. This path of holiness is the way to blessing. May God help us to get a sense of that. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. Let's also think about the pith in praise. The pith, of course, is the very heart of the subject. We talk about the pith and the morrow, the very core of the subject. What is the very heart of this praise? We are told that everlasting joy is upon their head. They are obtaining gladness and joy. The sorrow and mourning have fled away. Everlasting joy. This is a joy that dispenses with the sorrows, tears that accompany sin and losing out with God. And it's a joy that remains. It's a joy that remains. Earthly joys always fade. The joys that we have in this world, they fade. The, the joy of good health, that's, that's a fading joy. That, that will pass. The joy of youth, it's a fading thing. Youth gives way to later ages and to the decline to the grave. Every occasion for happiness in this life that's wedded to this world And we do thank God for good times. But all of those occasions are just like the rose cut from the bush. The color can be vibrant and beautiful, but it fades away. But the joy that we have in Christ is eternal. It never grows old. You know, these people, they came with everlasting joy to a land of hardship. You read Ezra, you need Nehemiah. You read Haggai, Zechariah, you discover they had hard times. You read the psalmist who talked about the people going out and sowing with tears. They had hard times. And it is true, you know, in life, whenever something new happens, there's exuberance and there's happiness. It's new, it's different. There's an excitement. It's a new chapter in the book of life. Maybe a new chapter on God's service. But then that initial exuberance it it fades, doesn't it? And you get into the reality of it, the difficulties of it, the challenges of it and it, it feels different. And you have to put your shoulder to the wheel and keep going. Keep plowing. But in the midst of all of that we can have a deep seated Joy that never leaves. And that's where Christ comes in. Our joy must be grounded in Him. And in Nehemiah 8, verse 9, we have those words. And they did apply to the captives as they returned in a later generation. The joy of the Lord is your strength. In days of hardship, Nehemiah said, The joy of the Lord will always be your strength. And Christ said in John 15 and 11, These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. You see, true praise is about the joy that we have in Christ. That's why the Christians can still praise God when tears are being shed because of the the hardships and the difficulties and the trials and even the grief. We can still praise God because Christ never changes. That's the beauty of it all. That's what these people learned, and therefore they came. And everlasting joy was upon their heads. Just in closing, a couple of illustrations from days of revival. During the 1859 revival, Dr. Paisley records this in his book. A person was writing from Ulster on the 2nd of June, 1859. And the letter said this. This is an eyewitness of revival. The 23rd, the 40th, the 116 Psalms Seemed to be psalms of power in the hands of the Spirit, in important, indescribable joy. They are heard at the midnight hour, sung by bands of persons, old and young, returning from their prayer meetings, old martyrdom, thus accompanied, and thus heard at twelve o'clock and the midnight breeze. has a wonderfully solemnizing influence. The people just didn't sing in church, they sang on the way home from church. They were walking, of course. They didn't sing just in the morning. They sang even at midnight. You could hear them along the streets. God was working amongst His people. People couldn't help but sing. That's what happened during the '59 revival. And then a book I, I picked up not all that long ago in a second-hand shop by a man called William Williams. Now. It's on the Welsh Calvinistic Methodism. And the Welsh Calvinistic Methodists really formed during the Evangelical Awakening. It's the Welsh Presbyterian Church. They were nicknamed the Calvinistic Methodists to set them apart from the Methodism of John Wesley. They followed the, the doctrinal teaching of George Whitefield. But, but just listen to this. Howell Horace, he was one of the preachers during... That awakening in Wales. Howell Horace was in the habit of attending the parish church at Talgarth on Sabbath morning. At the close of the service he unusually went out and stood on a tombstone or on the wall of the churchyard to address the dispersing congregation. Now must have been quite a sight. Wonder what the parson thought of it. Here was this man standing on a tombstone preaching to the people as they left church. On one of those occasions, there stood among his audience a young medical student from Carmarthenshire, who was at that time pursuing his studies at the neighbouring town of Hay. The words to which he then listened were blessed to his conversion, and he eventually resolved to relinquish his medical studies and to devote himself to the ministry of the gospel. The young man became one of the mightiest instruments of the revival he afterwards became known as the Reverend William Williams of Pantyselon. And uh, I'm sure that's a different William Williams from the man that wrote the book. An eminent minister of the gospel, but eminent still as the sacred poet of Wales. Now, Guide Me O Thou Great Jehovah was written by this William Williams. So he's a man greatly blessed with him writing. Now, listen to this. Very often in those early days was the smoldering fire which had been kindled by the sermon flamed into a flame by the hymn of William Williams which was sung at the close. God blessed the singing to reinforce the preacher's message bring sinners to Christ. And of course the Methodists were greatly famed for their song and days of revival. We need to see something of that, don't we? The Lord working amongst his people. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. May the Lord bless these thoughts to your heart and to your soul. Let's get before.